and welcome to this Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jassani. Today it's my great pleasure to welcome Richard Meeson. Richard is a diplomat of the European College of Veterinary Surgery and a lecturer in orthopaedics here at the Queen Mother Hospital for Animals. So thanks very much, Richard, for joining me today. Um, today, Richard, I'd like to discuss cruciate disease in dogs, which I think is one of the most common orthopaedic disorders in this species. I guess the kind of most intuitive place to start is by asking you if you could basically remind us essentially what the cruciate ligaments are and you know what is sort of God's greater purpose for them. <laughs> okay, well, um, thanks for having me here this morning, Shailen. So... Um, the cruciate ligaments, so there's a, they're a paired ligament and they cross and that's why they're called a, a cruciate because they look like a cross. And in the knee there's the cranial ones that inserts at the sort of the front of the tibia and then there's a caudal one. And the, it tends to be the cranial cruciate, the one at the front that we tend to see most of the problems with. And, and do, do they... Is one more important than the other, as it were? Yeah. Um, when there has actually been um, experimental studies done many, many years ago where they cut one or the other, and if you cut the one at the front, the cranial cruciate, dogs had a lot of lameness, a lot of problems, and they got a lot of arthritis, whereas if you cut the one at the back, it didn't cause so many problems. So the cranial one is, is the considerably more important ligament, and... It's, it's a, it sort of functions as a restraining mechanism. So as a dog walks, its tibia wants to sort of push forwards relative to the femur. Okay. And the, the cruciate basically acts as sort of a strap to restrain that, that, that abnormal movement, which is what we see when, when they rupture. And um, do, they, do they essentially do the same thing in humans as well? Because obviously those of us who follow football will be quite very familiar, familiar with, with cruciate, cruciate injuries. Them. So, yeah, the, the cruciate is... The, the anatomy is quite similar, but people stand upright, so the leg is sort of straight, whereas dogs stand at an angle. Mm. So there is more of a problem, or the cruciate is more important in a dog than in a person, or there might be some human orthopaedic surgeons that might disagree with me. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so we'll talk about how the cruciate can become diseased in a minute, but um, so are we saying that the cranial one is the one that's most commonly affected as well? Yeah, it's very rare that we see problems with the caudal okay, cruciate. So it's the, most, it's the more important one and it becomes diseased more often yeah and i guess that might be because it's the more important one yeah potentially and then that's some of the arguments about why they go wrong maybe that's the one that's doing more of the work okay, so it's, it's more vulnerable um and then in terms of how the um the cruciate ligaments can become diseased if that's the right word could you just kind of tell us sort of what are the what are the processes that might occur and obviously you've sort of touched on on what they do anyway but what would be the consequences of abnormalities in those ligaments so there are sort of two problems that you can see with the cruciates. The one problem is that you can over, overload it and snap it, and that tends to be actually what you describe in people. Um, it's the classic footballer's skiing injury. Okay. Now, in dogs, although um, when people come to see me in the clinic, they say, oh, well, he was running and snapped his ligament, what has probably happened is that there's actually been degeneration of that ligament, and that's probably been going on for some time beforehand. So cruciate ligament disease is actually quite a good term because okay. they're not normally normal ligaments. They've just overdone it and snapped. Okay, understand. And um, that degeneration is just the consequences of being used, essentially? Well, we don't really know. Um, there are different theories for, for why the ligament starts to degenerate, and, you know, you look at certain dog breeds a bit more prone to it than others, so there may be a genetic component to it. 
Um, it may relate to how steep the, the tibia slopes back, so it puts more strain on, on the ligaments. Okay. It may be related to sort of problems of blood supply or, or inflammation that start first. And, and it's one of these chicken and egg things that no one really has got to grips with. There are lots of different theories and lots of different things um, to explain it, but there isn't a, a one answer at the moment. Okay, so, but, um, so that's interesting. So basically a, a chronically abnormal ligament that is already susceptible. That tends to be and what... Then per- yeah. Perhaps something per acutely occurs Absolutely. that just tips you over the edge. And you may break a little bit or it may break completely and you get a various spectrum of what goes on. And in terms of the consequences then, I guess obviously... Um, you know, abnormality of the knee joints is a, yeah. <laughs> is a very simple way of summarizing yeah. it. But, but what are the kind of consequences of having, to the patient, of having, a, you know, cruciate that's diseased? So they can have, um, if the ligament actually breaks or is degenerating, you can get inflammation in the joints. So you can get arthritis type changes, which we see very commonly. And it really, as, as I alluded to at the start, it affects how stable the knee joint is. So now the knee joint is starting to move abnormally as they walk, and that's quite uncomfortable. And that can also lead to damage of other structures in the knee, specifically the, the menisci, the little what we call shock-absorbing pads um, that, that function to increase the congruency between the femur and the tibia. And what are these menisci made of? They're fibrocartilage, okay. so, so they're, they're, they're very cleverly designed or evolved structures that, that distribute load um, very carefully across the knee and, and basically make the knee joint fit together better. Because they seem to be quite an important um, part of the conversation in orthopaedic worlds about the cruciates and the knees, and it's often something that I think uh, we'll touch on the, the surgical procedures and stuff later, but it is something that you guys pay a fair amount of attention to, right? Yeah, and, and um, they're very important because... When they are damaged, um, they're quite painful. Um, So not addressing that is is, is a problem, I think. Okay, and um, before we kind of go on and talk in more detail about um, cruciate disease in dogs, I did just want to ask you whether we have any idea in terms of the kind of prevalence of this problem. Well, I guess firstly, presumably they, they fulfill a similar function in cats, and then do we have any idea about the prevalence of cruciate disease in domestic cats? So, yeah, so um, they are basically doing the same sort of job in cats. Um, I mean, the prevalence in dogs is, is about 5%, um, according to some literature, but we actually don't have enough um, research papers in cats to give you a number. Um, I would say I see them from time to time, relatively infrequently. Okay. Um, they are considered most commonly to be uh, trauma-related in cats, um, however, we are seeing sort of a population of the overweight, sort of seven, eight-year-old, slightly older cats um, that may be getting a similar degenerative problem like we see in the dogs. Okay. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it obviously is a much bigger problem in dogs. I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about cats, but presumably the principles that we're going to go on to talk about in terms of the approach to assessment and management and stuff would be similar yeah bearing but, in mind the whole cats are not small dogs absolutely thing. virtually the same actually um but you know cats are more um can be more difficult to assess certainly when you're trying to work out their lameness um mm. because they tend to go very flat to the ground <laughs> and sort of hide and they don't want to walk and all that kind of stuff in yeah. front of you but Fair cats right. have their own sort of fun aspects with that but but the physical exam aspects are very similar Excellent. Um, so let's carry on and talk kind of more specifically about dogs. Um, presumably any dog 
can be affected. But I guess, um, could you let us sort of tell us whether cruciate disease is more prevalent in any particular age of dog or breed of dog? Yeah, there's quite a lot of um, studies on this. And basically, large breed dogs uh, are quite commonly affected. Um, and we tend to see them at a younger age than the sort of the smaller breed dog groups that we see. So if it's a Yorkie or a Westie, they tend to be that little bit older. Um, and if it's a Labrador or a Rotty, they tend to be that little bit younger. Um, we also tend to see a little bit more in females, a little bit more in dogs that are overweight. Um, so, yeah, some, some, I mean, if you take my clinic, um, I see a lot of Labradors with cruciate ligament problems. I see a lot of Rottweilers. Um, and then I also see a lot of little Yorkies and Westies um, and Staffies. And um, I guess going back a little bit to what we talked about earlier in terms of the way in which the ligaments can become diseased, I presume that in, in kind of your sort of circles there are discussions about why the bigger dogs tend to be sort of seen younger ages, the little dogs at older ages in terms of the pathology that's going on. But I, I guess we don't have a definite answer to that. No, there, there isn't a definite answer to that. Um, they're the sort of the, they're the particular groups that we see that we tend to see it in, and, and you know maybe you could relate it to genetics or uh, selective breeding and those sorts of aspects. But no one's really. It seems to be the same sort of pathology, but it seems to accelerate more rapidly in the larger dogs that are more at risk. Um, and um, again, we won't go into detail about the surgical procedures, but are you guys sending bits of damaged cruciate ligament for histopathology, for example? Or? Yeah, um, not routinely. Um, that, um, that has been done um, by other centres, okay. um, but we, there's no... Um, from a clinical point of view, there isn't any sort of usefulness for the client for that um and it won't change sort of ongoing treatment but from a research perspective that is certainly something that that has some merit but has been done before and elsewhere um i guess going back to that sort of the benefit to the client and the patient question again we're going off on a tangent a little bit but um i suppose again somewhere like here where we're a teaching institution and to some degree we do have a teaching budget that allows us to do some things that don't get charged to the client. I guess, so I can see why maybe here we might have more of an argument for saying, okay, well, we could maybe do it. Mm. But certainly in private practice, would be, I guess it would be difficult to justify charging Yeah, very difficult to justify that to the client, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Um, and so in terms of the, I guess, uh, the clinical signs that you would most commonly associate with dogs presenting with cruciate disease, are there such signs that that kind of start to ring some alarm bells or are they quite non-specific? There are a few things that you, you quite commonly hear people say. So things like, oh, I've noticed my dog now sits with the uh, affected leg sort of um, extended outwards, mm. doesn't bend it underneath them anymore. Um, and obviously most people are coming in talking about lameness um, and nearly all these dogs do are lame. Um, the severity is quite variable. Okay. Um, and it can depend on sort of chronicity or how acutely it's occurred. Um, and, and even breeds, I see a difference. I see um, boxers present very lame with very mild damage to their cruciate ligaments, and then you get some Labradors that the whole thing's completely ruptured, and, <laughs> and they're sort of pootling around quite happily, really. There's a lameness there. Mm. Um, do you think that's, that's less of a functional thing and more of a 
breed temperament yeah thing, it or? could be a breed temperament thing but then you know um for we know maybe boxers have got more nociceptive receptors in their mm. cruciate ligament or certainly um it's been shown that um cruciates have a role in proprioception so there are nerve endings in there that do have a functional okay. um, aspect to how the knee works so so it's difficult to know really and it may even be things like do they have a concurrent meniscal injury because that can be very uncomfortable yeah. as yeah. well and um with, with the lameness again i don't i don't want to go off on a tangent talking about lameness assessment but do do we have a sort of lameness scoring system that we tend to routinely use yeah there really? i mean there are lameness scoring systems um you either use um the sort of the up to 10 scale or up to five scale um and actually, it's quite interesting that unless you're at an extreme, so they're extremely lame, say non-weight bearing or, or, or sound, um, there's been a lot of evidence that actually it's, a, it's not a very effective system and mm. people, um, you know, students don't necessarily score any better than, than experienced clinicians. It's just experienced clinicians that um, score more reliably. Mm. So they give the same score again and again and again to the same patient but the numbers are still quite variable okay. so it, it's useful as a vague benchmark but I, d- I don't put too much stock in it really okay but these dogs can present with as you said with lameness off variable yeah they could severity. be they could be very mild um such that it's fairly perceivable all the way to not using a leg at all okay and um in terms of physical exam findings then um could you kind of run us through... So let's just assume the dog's stable yep. with my ECC hat yep. on. In Major all body systems In all other okay. respects, yep. there, are, there are no other issues other than a lameness that appears to be localised to one hind limb. Mm-hmm. Um, could you kind of run us through some of the common physical exam findings? In, in a cruciate. In a cruciate. Yeah, yeah and, and this is usually the bit that I find most informative and probably tells me virtually everything I need to know. Um, so specifically, I'd be feeling either side of the um, patella ligament, um, for a stifle effusion, um, and nearly all of them and have the it. patella ligament runs. So, so if you were if you were palpating the leg in exam, your best bet is to feel the the shin bone, the tibia, and you feel the first bump, and that's the tibial crest. Mm-hmm. And then you can run your finger up something that's normally say in a Labrador is like a sort of a sort of a bit like a large pen, and that's the um, patella ligament. And then the next bump is the patella. So it goes in between the patella and the tibial crest. And if you feel either side of that, if it's not kind of really tight and defined, um, if it sort of feels less clear, or if you actually sometimes you can actually squash the sort of the swelling from either side to side, that's indicative of a stifle effusion. The next thing that you may find, certainly in the more chronic cases, will be something called a medial buttress. And the best way to sort of appreciate that is compare one leg to the other, which is a bit of a shame if they've got bilateral disease. Um, And what you'll feel is on the medial aspect of the tibia, sort of a a pronounced thickening. It's quite hard. You'd almost think it was bone. And if you run your hands over, the bump is quite a lot larger on, on one side than the normal side. And that's the body trying to respond to the instability in the knee joint. Um, other things that you would uh, feel would be, you know, muscle atrophy or decreased weight bearing on that leg. And then you would move to specific tests of the cruciate ligament itself. So what I find most helpful, and certainly in the larger dogs, um, is something called tibial thrust. Mm. And tibial thrust is, is basically a physical exam test um, that's mimicking what happens when they walk. So as they walk, with the, when the cruciate's ruptured, the knee, the tibia sort of jumps forwards, 
because it's not being restrained by the cru cranial cruciate. And you can actually simulate that by having your hand on the femur and you put your finger on the tibial crest. And if you flex the hock, you can simulate what happens when they walk and it will shunt forward. And most dogs will tolerate that conscious. The other test is cranial draw, where you actually physically manipulate the knee and slide the tibia relative to the um, relative to the femur. And that test often isn't tolerated by larger dogs. And if they're a little bit tense, um, unless you're the um, world's strongest man, you may actually struggle to, to achieve a, a, a reliable test from that. So sometimes those tests are best done, and I always repeat them under sedation or anesthesia. Okay. Um, but quite often you can do a lot of that in the consult room. Okay, so um, joint infusion medial buttress, yep. tibial thrust, yep. and cranial, cranial draw. And you may also feel some crepitus if they've got some osteoarthritic change. Um, and then they may have the sort of changes associated with the lameness, so the, you know, the muscle atrophy and the decreased weight bearing. On the okay, leg. and um, the cranial draw, is that something that... Um, it's kind of one of those things that years ago when I was a student... Um, <laughs> As, as with a number of things, you, you kind of get told it like it's really obvious mm. and it must be so easy to appreciate if it's there, et cetera, yes, et cetera. It's not always. And I guess that's my question really is, that, cause I, you know, is it something that, that, yeah, if you don't notice it, it's because you're not very, very good or actually is it actually sometimes quite no, subtle? Um, it, I mean, you can get some dogs with very mild tears of the cruciate ligament and these are really super subtle and it's the kind of super subtle ones that even the surgical residents struggle with. Mm. Um, but if you, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a job like mine where you're seeing these all the time, then you do start to appreciate the yeah. really subtle ones. So I, would, I wouldn't expect someone in general practice who isn't doing it as frequently to, to necessarily identify those. And even when, when we have dogs in with, with a cruciate rupture, we always tell the students to, you know, when the dog's sedated, come and have a feel of it because this might, may be the last time you yeah. feel this before you go out into clinic. Yeah, and it's important thing to have, to have felt and done correctly under supervision because it's very different to doing incorrectly and thinking you've done it. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things that I was very aware of that, you know, you show students something and they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you haven't done it because I did that yeah, when I was yeah, a student yeah, as well. <laughs> uh, and you go, yeah, of course I can feel that. And absolutely, you can't. Absolutely. And, and making sure that they all clearly actually do a proper cranial draw. And it's a technique thing as well. Mm. You know, people, sometimes people are waggling the knee and they think they're achieving it and they're not, or mm. they're rotating the tibia. Mm. But a proper sliding cranial draw is something I think is a very important thing to have at least done a couple of times under supervision with someone that really knows you're doing it correctly. No, absolutely. Um, and I want to come back to that in a minute, actually. But before we do, um, so from what you said already, I'm kind of getting the sense about what the answer to this question might be. But... Do you think that there is any role for kind of further diagnostic testing or actually on the basis of the information that we've covered so far, in most cases, have you achieved a diagnosis? For me personally, um, I usually find that I am 95% sure uh, of a cruciate rupture based on my physical exam findings. Um, now, the diagnostic tests are important, um, but I'm usually pretty sure um, of, of that that's the problem if I've got a cranial draw or a tibial thrust, and certainly well, that's a component of their problem. And so what diagnostic tests would you do? And I guess they're, they're partly about confirming or maybe confirming the diagnosis, but also maybe evaluating the health of the joints. Yeah, and, and, and uh, well, we take... Um, Usually we just take routine radiographs, so we take a, a medial lateral view of the stifle and a cordocranial view, because in orthopaedics you should always take 
orthogonal views, so two views at 90 degrees, because things, you know, it allows you to place things in, in 3D, um, and some things you may miss on one view and see on another view. And would you routinely take views of the other limb as well? It depends, really. Um, I don't necessarily. Now, I think if you're less comfortable with what you're, what you're looking at, mm. then having the contralateral limb is really useful because it gives you a comparator. Now, obviously, if they've both got crucial ligament ruptures, yeah. like, that's quite difficult. Yeah, sure. But um, I, I think it can be quite useful, but I don't routinely unless I think there's a clinical problem or I'm looking for a clinical problem in the other leg. And just briefly, what, what, are, the, what are the things you're looking for on those radiographs? Yeah, well, um, there's a few things. So um, certainly I'll be looking to confirm whether the ra radiograph looked consistent with a cruciate ligament rupture because you can't actually diagnose a cruciate on a radiograph. You can't mm. see the cruciate. It's mm. soft tissue. Um, but you get characteristic changes. Now, the radiograph may elucidate, it may show you some other concurrent problem, like it may have an OCD lesion. So you may have to, you know, there are other things that you may pick up um, that you would have otherwise missed. Um, but typically what we see would be a spectrum of disease from just a mild effusion on the radiograph. So you'll see compression of the fat pad and the sort of increase in that grey area in the middle of the the, uh, the, the actual joint itself, through to forming some osteophytes, quite often on the patella, around the fabella, on the tibial plateau. Um, and, you, and that can become quite marked as the arthritis develops, and it can develop quite quickly. Are those things, that, are they not specific to cruciate disease? Are they? Well, they're specific to osteoarthritis yeah. um, in the stifle joint. Yeah. Now, if you look at those radiographs, most people would, and most specialists would go, um, secondary changes could be consistent with a cruciate. So you can't be 100% sure, because you yeah. could get some of those changes with an OCD lesion yeah. or maybe a, a bad patella luxation. But um, most of the time you're seeing those things and they are related to a cruciate. Okay, great. And um, so just stepping back a little bit, I guess when you were talking about um, the cranial drawer, it kind of made me wonder that how many cases do you think we tend to see where we get referred a patient that has a hind limb lameness but the diagnosis of cruciate disease, I guess it might have been mentioned in the referral notes, but it's not with a lot of conviction. So mm. it takes us back to the kind of the subtlety of the diagnosis, really, that do, we, do all our cases come in with a, I think this dog has cruciate disease, or no. do they come in with, here's a lameness? Um, I mean, we get, it depends. Um, some vets do refer us for lameness, um, and some vets will refer, and they've done a, you know, a thorough exam, and they're pretty sure what they found, and they're usually correct. Mm -hmm. um, what we do see sometimes is a dog that has been previously diagnosed with, say, hip dysplasia, and there's some radiographs got bad, um, you know, osteoarthritic hips. And then the dog goes acutely quite lame, and sometimes it can be assumed that that will be the hips are the yeah. problem um, and although the hips may be a problem as well um, concurrent cruciate ligament rupture is actually something that, that I would see as the incidental diagnosis with, with something that's been referred for hip dysplasia from time to time yeah okay Prodor labradors eh yeah I know <laughs> bless them um, so then I just wanted to kind of move on and talk about the treatment um, and I guess essentially our options are conservative versus surgical management but could you please kind of talk us through briefly the sort of decision-making process that you will go through, obviously in collaboration with owner's wishes, mm. but what are the kind of guidance that we can provide people about that? 
I would generally say that a cruciate ligament rupture, uh, unless there are extenuating circumstances, is a surgical disease and needs surgical stabilisation of the stifle joint. And that's partly because the longer it's unstable, the more likely you get more you know, concurrent injuries to the menisci and other problems. Now, you, you can, um, you know, animals under about 10 to 12 kilos... You could conservatively manage them, um, and they do okay, um, but they don't necessarily do that well. And I think they're... And the same goes for cats, actually. Um, Their route to recovery is more rapid if you've done something to stabilise the cruciate ligament or the the stifle surgically. So two things, really, I guess. One is... um do we talk about complete and partial ruptures? or? Yeah, we can really? do. <laughs> I don't mean here per se, but I mean when you're saying the rupture of the cruciate ligament is a surgical disease, yeah. does complete versus partial matter in that? Well, I think really? um, I've only seen a couple of cases uh, in my career where I've seen that they've had a very mild partial rupture okay. on, diagno- and on clinical exam and, and radiographs would corroborate that. And actually we've managed them conservatively and they've got better. Now, they're probably ones that have had a traumatic, very okay. mild tear, but they, okay. these are rare. Okay. Most dogs have got degenerative process and a partial tear will eventually become a complete... Okay. understand. understand. And um, that 10 to 12 kilo thing, um, where did that come from? It's, a, it's quite an old <laughs> uh, paper um, where they managed um, a group of dogs... That were under that weight conservatively, and they did okay. Now that's not assessed with force plate or yeah, sure. you know modern techniques. And um, say the same goes for the cats. People say you can conservatively manage cats, and you can. Um, but I say I think they get better quicker and probably have better outcomes. Because again, having not been in these sort of circles for quite a while. Um, I guess my memory of that was partly that the numbers might not have been the same. I seem to remember like maybe 15 kilos was mentioned somewhere in my, mm. in my life. Mm. Um, but also that, you know, it, it can almost come across as an, if an animal's 16 kilos, that's it. Or if it's 13 kilos, that's it. You've crossed some kind of threshold. And I guess my question well, is, spectrum, always, isn't it? where does this threshold come from in the first place? So. Well, it was, it, was just, it, was just the, um, it was just the weight distribution that they, they had in that yeah. paper. And then it's a number that gets repeated yeah. um, <laughs> again and again and again. The principles... Um, the principle is the same, I guess. If they're very small, then it's considered that you, you could get away with conservative management. Okay. Um, but I would generally offer surgery. Um, so then speaking about surgery then, in terms of what, what are the surgical options? Again, we obviously don't have time to go through each in detail. Mm. But if you could just kind of summarize, I guess, what are the principles of surgical intervention and what are the options for procedures? And then we'll talk after that a little bit more about the relative evidence for one mm-hmm. procedure versus another. I guess, broadly speaking, you can split it into three surgical categories. There's the um, intra-capsular um, type of approach, which is very um, old-fashioned now, whereby you take a strip of skin or a strip of fascia and pass it through the joint. Um, then you've got the... So essentially to mimic... To mimic, really? yeah, with a, with a biological um, tissue. So it kinda, it's, it's a good idea, and actually it's, it's more akin to what they do in people, but they, they do it in a much more sophisticated fashion. Uh, and then you've got the extra capsule suture technique, so that's actually on the outside of the um, stifle joint itself. Um, you have a piece, usually nylon, um, which mimics the sort of alignment of the cruciate and stops, stops the stifle being unstable. Um, and then the third group are the osteotomy techniques, to which there are plenty and varied. Mm. But basically, they are what we call dynamic stabilizations. So they alter how the stifle joint, sort of the dynamics of the stifle joint, um, so that you no longer really need a cruciate ligament. 
Um, and, and they've got various evidence bases between them for what you do. So um, I guess that since I graduated, the osteotomy techniques are new. Um, I'm pretty sure that when I was a student, that wasn't something that came across. So I guess we're talking about in the last kind of 13, 14 mm-hmm. years, they seem to have emerged. And one of the questions I guess I had really was um, a criticism that's sometimes levied against these kinds of procedures is that they appear to be more invasive, mm-hmm. potentially. Well, I think they are. Right, more traumatic to the patient, if you like, and more expensive is another criticism that's levied against them. And I guess... The question that, that I would like to kind of answer, I'll ask you here really is what is the evidence for these techniques being in any way better than the older techniques? And do you think that some of the criticisms about these newer osteotomate techniques are made kind of by people without adequate knowledge of the area? Or is, is it easy to say, but actually there is evidence that they are an improvement on what we used to do before? Because in my first job as a new graduate, we had an excellent surgeon. He wasn't a diplomat, he wasn't a specialist, mm. but he was brilliant, brilliant surgeon, excellent tissue handling, all of that. And I'm pretty sure he used to do intracapsular techniques, maybe extracapsular techniques, seemed very happy with what mm. he was doing. Mm-hmm. And I, I can imagine what he would say about the osteotomy mm, technique. I'm sure. Well, um, so I guess it's just a discussion, really, because I know it's something that, that sort of out there, it, it can, you know... It can be a hot topic, be a hot certainly. Topic, yeah. yeah. Um, where do we start? So I think the first thing that I can definitely rule out is the intracapsular techniques. So um, there was a really big study uh, where they compared intracapsular technique to uh, extracapsular to a TPLO, which is a type of osteotomy technique. And they, that was done with force plate, so it's relatively uh, objective data. Um, can you just um, explain what force plate is? Yeah, yeah so um, rather than having a, a surgeon or a vet stand there and look at a dog and go, mm, I don't think he's quite as lame as he was, mm. they actually, um, they're sort of, um, it's like a pressure-sensitive or a force-sensitive mat that dogs can walk across, and it determines how hard they strike their feet against the ground, and, and you can work out vectors and things like that. So basically, it's a it's an, a numerical way of assessing how the dogs are using their their legs or what forces are going through them. So. Small scientific on the assumption that it should be should be, but there are some caveats to it. But it, it's 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 certainly better than someone just giving a lameness score, which is what we kind of talked about. So you're kind of looking at um, abnormalities in weight distribution. Weight distribution and sort of how fast they're moving and how they move their legs will affect the vectors that you get as well. So it's quite complicated, but um, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a good technique, relatively speaking. So anyway, so they did all that, and um, what they could show was that the intracapsular techniques, so the really old-fashioned techniques, are actually inferior um, the outcomes were not as good. Um, and the extracapsular suture um, compared to a TPLO was about the same. Um, so on, on the basis of that study, um, you could say that the, there wasn't a, a great advantage of doing an osteotomy technique over an, a well-done extracapsular suture. But the, the two of them were better than the intracapsular technique. So I wouldn't bother with an intracapsular technique as they stand currently. Okay. And do we have any... Because I guess one of the questions that we, we can't ignore really is um, force plates all very well and good. I don't mean that as it sounds. But in terms of patient comfort, analgesia dependency, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, long-term, well, do we I, have any of those kinds of studies? Yeah, so there's, there's been some studies that looked at long-term um, clinical outcome um, and long-term 
progression of osteoarthritis. And in the long term, um, and certainly for up to large breed dogs, there isn't, doesn't appear to be a difference between osteotomy techniques and extracapsular sutures. Now, uh, the caveat to that is that extracapsular sutures sometimes have been given a bad name, and I think it's probably because they haven't been done as well as they ought to have been done, because mm. um, there are some certain technical nuance to them that needs to be got, done correctly. But um, they can be a good technique. Now, what, what is quite interesting is when we um, do um, osteotomy surgery, say TTA or TPLO in, in our clinic, or we do an extracapsular suture, and we do offer people both, okay. um, what we see is that dogs that have the more invasive uh, surgery, so the osteotomy techniques where we've actually cut bone, put metal implants in and stuff like that, walk really well the next day after surgery uh, and are more comfortable and go home earlier on less painkillers okay. than the dogs where we've put an extra capsule suture in. Now, that sounds not what you'd expect, mm. but that's what we see. They're basically completely consistently. There's a few exceptions, but that's typically what we see. And, and my personal thoughts are that the, probably the extra capsular suture is a bit like a strapping around the knee. Mm. I think it feels restrictive and uncomfortable. Um, whereas even though you've cut the bone and done all this invasive stuff um, with the TTA or a TPLO, um, they are actually very comfortable after surgery. That's really interesting. And um, I guess the million-dollar question for you, you have a six-year-old, otherwise healthy, <laughs> male-neutered Labrador that lives in your house that has a complete cruciate, cranial cruciate ligament mm-hmm. rupture. Which surgical procedure do you use? I'd have to look at my bank balance, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, there are a few things that would affect what I'd say, actually. So um, if the dog also had a concurrent other orthopedic problem or if it was, say, developing a cruciate on the other side, my inclination would be to do a, an a TPLO or a TTA because they will weight bear more rapidly and they're not going to put so much strain on the opposite leg. Um, So that would be a factor that would affect what I would do. Um, And, you know, I think that the um, osteotomy techniques have very good outcomes and we don't touch wood, rarely have any problems with them. Sometimes extracapsular sutures can stretch a bit early. Um, Now, that's also pretty rare, um, but we don't tend to see that kind of problem in a a TTA or a TPLO. That's really interesting. And if you're a you're a you know young graduate vet vet in practice, um, in terms of the learning curve and the training that you need, is it a shorter time course to be able to do an extra capsular repair on a cruciate versus being trained and getting the necessary equipment and so on to do the osteotomy techniques? Yeah, or? it is um, for, for sure. Um, you know, a, a TTA or TPLO is considerably technically more demanding uh, and you need a bigger repertoire of skills. So um, if you were going to embark down that road, you, you would be sensible to start with extracapsular sutures. Um, and, you know, uh, generally speaking, they are a very good option for most of your patients. Um, what is quite challenging um, and, and doesn't vary between the two is actually being able to open up the joints and do a good inspection of, of the structures inside the joint. Mm. And that can be quite difficult. Um, you know, assessing the menisci, checking the cruciate, checking the caudal cruciate. Now, that, that is quite a skilled thing to do. Um, and although there are some people that suggest that... Um, and some courses that it's not necessary, um, we all, all the orthopaedic surgeons here would consider it to be essential because there's such a high number of dogs that have a cruciate ligament and a concurrent meniscal injury that it would be 
more or less negligent not to deal with that at the time. So we think it's important to be able to, to have those skills and be able to do to that. To fully evaluate. And to do that, you really need someone there who's got a lot of experience at doing that with you when you start doing them. Because it's not something you can guess your way around, really. No, fair enough. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. Um, and then just the last thing before we end was I wanted to ask you about um, kind of rehabilitation therapies. Um, so physiotherapy and or hydrotherapy. One of the... Um, earlier podcast that we did in this series was with Holly, who you mm-hmm. obviously yeah. know very well, um, where we basically discussed these therapies. And again, they're relatively emergent in the sense that, you know, in the last decade or so, mm. they are becoming more available um, and more kind of uh, regulated in inverted commas, if you like. Um, and one of the things we touched on in that podcast was... Uh, the opinion of surgeons in inverted commas for <laughs> these therapies and mm. were they believers and non-believers and that kind of thing. Um, so I guess I was just interested to know from you whether this is something that you kind of routinely would pay uh, attention to, give consideration to. Do you uh, discuss it with the owners of your dogs that have cruciate disease? And I guess we've already, you've already kind of said that it sounds to me like proportionately conservative management is an option that, that we don't tend to use much but in those patients and especially in the post-operative ones is these kinds of rehabilitation therapies something that you would routinely be engaging in or yeah uh, it would be i mean i i am a believer uh, <laughs> the uh, i mean if you think about something like a tpla or a tta what they're doing is trying to dynamically stabilize the knee now to do that you've got to have good musculature because it's to do with the muscle balance between the quadriceps and the hamstrings as well. So you can't have, you can't do a surgery on a whittled leg with no musculature and go, oh, that will be fine. Mm. It's only half the battle. Mm. So, um, and if you're a person, um, sometimes they'll do physiotherapy before you even had the surgery. Um, and there are some cases whereby they can actually sort of manage the cruciate just with physiotherapy by maintaining good muscle distribution in certain groups that it balances the knee. Now, we can't quite do that uh, in veterinary patients, but it is definitely a big part of the rehabilitation, in my opinion. Um, Certainly any dogs that are more chronic and have got considerable muscle atrophy, I would always send them um, or at least suggest it. Now, sometimes it can be a cost problem. Yeah. Generally, I mostly send for hydrotherapy, but some, depending on what they've had done or what their problems are, I may send for physio and or hydro. Um, and as sure Holly talked about it, there's the uh, underwater treadmill, um, which is a very good way of having controlled hydrotherapy to build up the, the muscle blocks that actually will support the knee. I mean, the surges that we do kind of get them, almost get to them, basically get them to a point whereby things are improved, but the rehabilitation gets them that, that little bit further. Yeah. And I guess one of the things that's, uh, that's interesting is probably the, the emergence of the osteotomy techniques and the greater availability of kind of rehab therapies mm. that sort of coincided in a way. Mm-hmm. So I guess it would have been, not interesting is the wrong word, but to do the osteotomy techniques without the rehab mm. um, versus they sort of have, I guess, I guess the people that are doing the osteotomy techniques are probably also the people that are recommending the rehab therapies. Well, you'd hope so. Yeah. Um, I guess it's not necessarily guaranteed, but I think... Uh, if you understand what you're doing with an osteotomy technique, I think you should see the importance of, of the of main... Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Okay, cool. Um, I think that's kind of everything that, um, that I wanted to touch on today. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to mention, or do you think we've covered it all? No, I think, I think that's pretty comprehensive, okay, really. Awesome. <laughs> so, look, thank you so much for your time, and um, you know, hopefully we will come back 
in the future and record some more podcasts. And, um, <clears throat> you know, as I was saying before, those could be either other common orthopedic problems, but also potentially dive into cruciate disease and the surgical techniques and stuff in more detail as well. But I'll give you a bit of time before I come knocking on your door again. So um, thank you so much. And to the listeners, as always, um, you know, do feel free to get in touch. And if you have questions specifically about canine cruciate disease, then I will make sure I go and ask Richard for you. Um, so you can email me directly at schasani at rvc.ac.uk. You can use the Royal Vet College's Facebook page. And actually, there is now a sort of album for these podcasts in that Facebook page. Um, or you can tweet us at Royal Vet College and use the hashtag SAClinPod. Um, and until next time, then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.